The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Let's pray. Father, we truly are overwhelmed by your mercy and your grace. Father, grace by definition is an undeserved thing. It should almost be the kind of thing that catches us by surprise if we hadn't known your character and your promises. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as we come to this text this morning, understanding the way in which this grace has come to us, that we would have a desire to see it and think about it and speak about it rightly understanding that there is a great deal at stake. We pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to desire, believe and trust what you have said to us through the pages of these sacred scriptures. Father, we ask it. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, is it Bob Ross that says happy little accidents when he's painting? And they'll say, that's just a happy little accident. We skipped a song on accident, but that was a happy little accident. Because on this first Sunday of Advent, my desire is to preach an entire book of the Bible to you. And Haley, knowing how one word can turn into an hour, she had the foresight and the wisdom. We're going to be this morning in Second um, John, or as all my preaching heroes call it, Two John. So once you've found Second John, go ahead and stand to your feet in reverence to the reading of God's word. Towards the end of your Bible, Second John. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father, and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves, so that you will not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Though I've written much to you, excuse me, though I have much to write you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So as I said, we, we begin in earnest this morning our, our first steps into the Advent season. And by now you are surely aware Advent is a, uh, it's not just a churchy word, it has a meaning behind it. And that meaning is one of arrival or the, the coming, the coming of Christ Jesus. This was the good news that born unto you this day in the city of David is a savior who is Christ 
the Lord. And as we made reference to during our opening reading and the lighting of the first candle, this was not a this was not an arrival that came out of nowhere. It had been ordained before the foundation of the world. And then for some 4000 years, God had been speaking, beginning right there in the Garden of Eden with the fall of man. Right in Genesis 315, we see God speaking, making promises and preparing the hearts of his people for the coming Christ. And those that had eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe it, they anticipated it. I want you to think about Simeon and Anna, those Old Testament saints that we talked about at the conclusion of last year's Advent season. But of course, whenever we come into this time of year, we aren't just celebrating the Advent. We aren't just celebrating the coming of our Savior. We also do well to stop, to slow down, to consider and to ponder together who is this Savior who has come. I'm speaking of the incarnation. Carne meaning meat or flesh. Incarnation in the flesh. That what we come to celebrate is not just that God has come to save. Not just that God has sent a Savior. But that God has taken on flesh. That the infinite Son, the eternal Lagos, the one who has always been and will always be God didn't just simply step into time and space in order to save, but he became like us in every single way, save and accept sin. Without ever ceasing, without ever relinquishing any of what it means to be God, the one who always is, always has been, and always will be God took upon himself a human body, a human mind, a human will, human emotions, what we would call a rational soul. God became man. That's the text that David read for us earlier. That, I looked backwards, and that was the first text we preached together last Advent, considering together this one who was always God and had always been with God face to face would come in the flesh, the incarnation. There are a few things Save and except for the Holy Trinity, there are a few things that will stretch the human mind beyond its bounds more quickly than this. God taking on flesh. At just the moment you think you might have some handles on it. At just about the moment that you think maybe you found some earthly and human analogy, some, some, some thoughts that could maybe allow you to grasp onto this thing, you pretty quickly realize I've fallen into a theological ditch. Because... The incarnation is completely unlike anything in all creation, completely unlike anything that man could ever hope for or dream up in his, in his, in his wildest imagination. That in this one divine person, there would be two natures, perfectly inseparable and yet in no way blended. Not some type of divine humanity and not some type of watered down human divinity but perfectly and inseparably two natures in one divine person. And, and what happens this time of year as we begin to consider this is I will say things like this or I will consider things like this and most of you that have grown up in the church or spent any time considering who Christ is, we, you nod your heads. This is not new information to you. I'm not standing up and bringing you some new novel idea or some, some profound discovery that I have made in my in my studies. As a matter of fact, I would tell you that any man that stands up this time of year and tells you he's got some new spin on Christ, some previously unheard thing about the Christ, he's probably erred tragically. So my hope for us this Advent season is not that I'm going to bring to you some brand new revelation or something that you had never really considered before. My hope is to be faithful and orthodox and true Yet recognizing that even as I read these sacred old truths and even as I present them and your heart swoons within you, you tend to nod your head at the familiarity. And yet even with that nodding, even with that agreement, we betray how comfortable we've gotten with it. How settled we've gotten in our ignorance. Remember, I told you back at the beginning of our at the beginning of our service of anticipation, I told you that, that our, my goal was that we would be much like the Virgin Mary, pondering these things. 
as familiar as they are and as true as we know them to be and as many Advent seasons as we've sat through, we ought to still be blown away. We ought, to, we ought to still recognize the majesty and the awe and the, the wonder that comes. Every time we hear this, it should be like we're hearing it for the first time. So that we find ourselves like Mary pondering these things. What did the scripture say? She stored them. She treasured them in her heart. That's my prayer for us this Advent season. That we would stare at these things and ponder them. That we would wonder about them. That we would learn to treasure them in our heart. That we wouldn't demand nice, clean, buttoned up answers. We, we, like, to, we like to segment things into categories. We like, to, we like to feel like we can get to the end of this Advent season and write a, wrap a nice bow around our Christology. We've got it mastered. Good. We've got Jesus figured out. We know what the incarnation is all about. We've got to refuse that. We've got to reject that. We've got to understand that it's going to be messy in our little pea brains. There are going to be things that don't make sense and don't come together. We don't know where all the pieces fit. We've got to trust him that it does. We've got to reject the desire to solve the puzzle. Instead, we're just going to learn to gaze and, and wonder. One of the things that we hope for our children that come through Telos, our, our classical Christian school, one of the things that we hope for them is that they will learn how to gaze. They will learn how to look. They will learn how to ponder. And I, I heard from one of the teachers that one of the exercises they did was they went outside and they walked around the school. And the question they asked the children or the, the challenge they gave the children was, tell us what you hear. And of course, their first response is things like, well, I hear a train. I hear traffic. I hear somebody honking a horn. But then once they sat for a while, once they tuned their ears, once their eyes adjusted, they started to hear other things, deeper things, much more meaningful things. That's my hope for us. That we wouldn't come blowing through this Advent season just looking for new nuggets, looking for little tidbits and Bible trivia about Christ that we can, we can share with our friends and impress them about how deep we are in our theology, that we would learn to sit and listen and wonder, be amazed at the same old things my prayer that we'd be blown away by the incarnation this year. But because, just because we're not trying to solve the puzzle, we're not trying to put every piece in its proper place, this does not mean that we can just believe whatever we want. We cannot allow our desire to behold the mystery rather than an insistence on solving a puzzle. We can't allow that to give us some license to sloppy or lazy theology. Because what we know about our hearts, what we know about humanity is it is very easy to worship and praise that which we have created in our own image. Whenever we, whenever we settle for a Christ that we have formed or, or a Christ that has come out of ourselves instead of coming to us from the scriptures as revealed by the spirit. Whenever we settle for a Christ that is coming out of us, we find ourselves like little canaries in cages singing to mirrors. Singing to ourselves, mesmerized by what our own minds and our own thoughts have brought together. And so I'm asking you not to just settle for a theology that is Jesus is the reason for the season. Without slowing down to ask, who is this Jesus? And what is his reason for coming? You ask that question to the average person. They put the, the, the sign in their yard or they put the post on Facebook. Jesus is the reason for the season. And then you look to them and say, okay, well then who is this Jesus? And what is his reason? And very quickly you will realize that they're claiming the name of Christ while having no real clue who he is or why he's come. No understanding of the incarnation and therefore why he came, what the advent is all about. Very often what happens is we do this because we like to create for ourselves a nice, safe, comfortable Jesus. One that doesn't stretch our minds. It drives us away from the very thing I'm hoping for us. Because it does hurt our minds and it does hurt our hearts. And when we consider why he had to come, why there was no other way of salvation apart from the Son of God coming in flesh to die, it hurts our minds and it hurts our hearts. 
And, and we hear this time of year so much really bad theology because people want to mark themselves out from the world. They won't want to be like the world that says happy holidays or season's greetings. They want to declare, put the Christ back in Christmas. But again, I say they have no idea what that even means. Who is the Christ? And so what you must know as we approach this letter together this morning, 2 John, as we approach it together this morning, you must know that what you say and what you think and what you believe about the word becoming flesh, it will not only affect but it will reflect your understanding of God's holiness, of man's depravity, of the sin and the fall, of redemption, of what the new heavens and the new earth are meant to look like. That the thoughts that you have about the incarnation, about God coming in the flesh, it's going to betray, it's going to reveal so much of what you understand about all the rest of theology. And at the same time, those thoughts that you hold on to about who the Christ is, they will affect your theology in so many ways. That's why there was a book that I was going to assign to you last Advent season, and I was told that it was too hard. I believe in you more than that. There's a book from Anselm, Anselm of Canterbury. It's called Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Man. It's a fairly easy read. It's a back and forth between Anselm and a man called, it's Basso, but I like to call him Bozo. It's this back and forth dialogue, question and answer, and it's this answering the question that is the title to the book, Why God Became Man. And it's not a Christmas book. It doesn't have to do with shepherds, and it doesn't have to do with wise men. It has to do with the atonement. It has to do with upholding and defending and satisfying the righteousness and the justice of God. Why God became man was to prove God both just and the justifier of sinners. Scripture couldn't be more clear on this, that Christ Jesus came to suffer and die as the true Lamb of God. That he came to lay down his life as a ransom for many. That he came to propitiate the wrath of God. By the shedding of his blood. If I can go back to that text I just quoted from Romans 3. To demonstrate the righteousness of God. Because in his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. To show God's righteousness at the present time. So that he might be both just. And the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. So you see as we, we consider the incarnation this season. As we think about who is this one that is come. And what does it mean for him to take on flesh. One of the questions we need to ask is, is this Jesus that we're proclaiming? Is this Christ in whom we are trusting? Is he both qualified and able to be my savior? If the answer is no, then you've missed the mark. Even if you're using Bible language, even if you're using all the catchphrases, even if you're saying the son of God came to in the flesh, that God became man. Even if you're using these biblical and theologically rich words, if what you end up with is a Jesus Christ that could not stand in our place is a substitutionary atoning sacrifice, then you've not got the Jesus of Scripture and you missed the mark. And so what we'll find is that we're going to spend then the whole of this life. Again, I say we're not going to master it in four weeks this Advent season, you're not going to master it in four decades. You wouldn't master it in four centuries. You wouldn't master it in four millennia. What's going to happen is the whole of this life is going to be a constant reforming. Constantly finding ourselves veering towards one ditch only to pull back the other direction and overcorrect. It's going to be a, a constant forming and shaping and bringing our thoughts back in line with sacred scripture. Making sure that we're not forming a Jesus that makes us comfortable and, and settles our mind. Recognizing that the world around us, and even many who proclaim the name of Christ, they are trying to deform us. In part because they don't have that same goal. Their goal is not to see the Christ of Scripture. Their goal is not to reform their thoughts to who Jesus has revealed himself to be. And that's why many throughout the history of the church have found themselves at war with the church over their Christology. Go, go back. We would do well 
to know at least a little bit, at least some understanding of early church history. And what you find is that so much of what brought these men to war, so much of what led men like Athanasius to be exiled five times was a desire to understand who is this Christ? What does the incarnation actually mean? And oftentimes what you'll find is that as you demand as much precision as the scripture will allow, and as you require of men that they speak rightly and biblically and reform their thoughts to what God has revealed, you'll find that you lose friends rather quickly. They find you to be overly narrow and, and, and closed-minded and, and restrictive and even unspiritual in your thoughts about God and salvation. And, but as we see when we come to this letter, this second letter from the Apostle John, what we see is that John has great concern with regards to what we say about Christ. That this is not a secondary thing. So this, this letter, it is, as, as best we can tell, it was written near the end of, of John's life. The Apostle John, same John that wrote the gospel. And what we find here in this short letter, it's, it's the second shortest book in the New Testament, just slightly behind 3 John. What is it, 13 verses? I think it's something like 245 Greek words, something like this. It's a single letter. It would have been a letter that fit on, on, on one page to these people. And he, he addresses them in verse 1. He says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. And he doesn't identify himself as an apostle. He doesn't identify himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Apparently, this is some people that he was, he was familiar with. And they were familiar with him. He just calls himself the elder, the prosbuteros, that's, the, that's the, the picture that we get of a elder or a pastor or a teacher. He had led these people before. He had taught them the, the truth, the apostolic message about who Jesus Christ was. And so we see as he works through this letter, he's got the heart of a pastor. He's got really two very clear concerns for these people. One of those is the way that they love on and relate to each other. The second concern he has, very closely connected to that, as we will see, is the way that they are protected and on guard against external threats. And, and I heard a man say in reference to this letter this morning, and it really did resound true with me, he said that for every pastor, not just for every pastor, but everyone who has been given charge of the souls of anyone else, whether it's a Sunday school group or your own family, but at the heart of one who has spiritual care and concern for another's, it really does come down to these two questions. Will we love each other? How will we relate to each other? How will we respond to each other? What is it going to look like to live this life out together as one? And how do we protect them from threats? How do we protect them from those things on the outside that might seek to destroy them? Well, that's the elder's concern here. He refers to people that he's speaking to as the elect lady and her children. Now, some people believe that who John is talking to here is a specific lady. In fact, they'll take the Greek word for elect and they'll say that's actually her name. So they think that this is just a, a Christian woman whom John has a previous relationship, not romantic or anything like this, but he knows this woman and he knows her children, biological children, or maybe her spiritual offspring. But he's writing to this woman who he knows, this woman who has been chosen by God and called in to the family. So that's, that's one thought with regards to who the elect lady and her children are. But then there's another group that read this and they think that maybe he's talking about a church. Maybe, maybe a large church, maybe a small church. And I tend to lean that way for a number of reasons. But one interesting fact is that this word lady here in Greek, it's curia. It's related to our word kurios, which is Lord. We, we don't use that language anymore, lords and ladies. But who is the lady to the Lord but his bride? And he's maybe pointing to the elect lady. He's talking about a church, maybe, in fact, a church in Ephesus. We know that John spent quite a bit of time there, that he had labored hard there amongst the church in Ephesus. So perhaps that who, that's who he's speaking to. But either way, whether he's speaking to a particular woman and her family, either biological or spiritual, whether he's talking to a specific church or group of churches there in Ephesus, either way, the message and the concern is the same. And either way, the message or concern that he has says something to us in our current context. So whenever you read through a letter, it's, it's often helpful to go through 
and just mark out repeating words or phrases. You, you probably notice this about the way that you speak or the, or the way that I preach. I'll repeat things over and over and over again. And most likely it's because that's something I want you to know. Either it's intentional and I want to make sure that you hear it and you have as much exposure to it. Or just because it's in my heart, it just keeps coming out. I wonder sometimes if my girls get frustrated with me when I drop them off at school. I don't know how many times I tell them I love them, but I guess the over under is probably five. Okay, I love you. Have a good day. All right, I love you. Be good. I love you. Okay, I love you. That's not some intentional I'm worried that they're going to think that I'm, I don't love them. But it's what's in my heart and it just keeps coming out and I can't help but say it. And so oftentimes as we look for these repeating phrases throughout the writings of scripture, we can find something about what's on this man's heart and what does he most want us to see. And I want you to take note of, see if there's any words that jump out at you if I re, as I reread these first four verses. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us, and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father, Son, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. Surely you recognize truth and the truth and the truth. Five times in these first four verses of this very short letter, you find the Apostle John speaking about truth and his desire for truth. As you read through the whole letter, though, you'll find that the only thing that comes close to his references for truth are his references for love. That seems fitting, doesn't it? We're talking about the apostle of love, the one that teaches us so much about love and what it looks like to love others and to love God. As a matter of fact, you may remember that the first letter that I preached to you, I guess creeping up on five and a half years ago, it was 1 John. And that this same apostle was giving to us some tests or you, you might say vital signs of spiritual life. How can I know what things will I see that prove that I've been born of the spirit? And you probably remember that one of those tests, one of the surefire ways that you can know that you have been born of the spirit is that you will love the brothers. Back in that letter, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Skipping down to verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So clearly he's got a desire for these two things running all throughout these letters. There's, there's a lot of parallels really as you go back. To the first John and maybe I'd encourage you to do that sometime this week. It's a short letter, five chapters. Go back and read through first John and hear those repeating tests that there's an orthodox understanding of who Christ is. There's an obedience and there's a love for the brothers. It, it seems as though perhaps what's happening is this elect lady and her children, whoever they are, they have read that first letter and now they've got some practical questions. What does it look like? How does this thing actually play out? in my life. But he has those same concerns, concerns for love and concerns for truth. That's why he almost seems to quote himself and Christ Jesus in verse five. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning that we love one another. I want you to love one another, but, but he won't allow us to settle for love on our own terms. He won't allow us to just define love any way that sees fit. You, you know those Christians. I know those Christians. I've tended to fall into this trap at times if I'm not careful. These Christians, they rightly say, look, the whole of the law is this, that you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and that you love your brothers. Those are the hooks on which everything hangs. And so then they just walk through this life saying, okay, then all I've got to do is love God and love others. And what you find out pretty quickly is they're loving God according to their definition of love. And they're loving others according to their definition of love. Beloved, love is not love. Love as God defines love is love. That's why he says in verse 6, and this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. And this is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning that we should walk in it. 
He's saying the way that you love is you love in truth and you walk in accordance with God's commandments. That the commandments of God, they tell us, okay, what does it look like to love my brother? And these commandments, they tell me, what does it look like to love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength? Otherwise, we find ourselves, I've made reference to this before, about a, a, a yard cat or a barn cat that goes and kills a mouse or kills a mole. And then they come and they put it on our doorstep as if they've given us a treat. Your barn cat says, this is the way I love. I kill a mole and I bring the stinky thing to you. And you say, well, thanks for nothing. This is an offense and a stench. But how many men, they go and they kill a mole. They do whatever it is that seems like love to them without bringing it in line with the truth of God and the commandments of God. And they bring it back to God and say, aren't you proud? God says, well, no. Well, I'm sincere in this, but it's death. And it's a stench. So John is saying that for you to love, for you to truly love, is to do so in right relationship with the truth, specifically that truth which God has revealed. Again, we don't get to define truth for ourselves. You remember the encounter that Jesus had with Pilate, and he's talking about the truth. And what was Pilate's response? What's truth? That's the world that we live in. So he's saying that that which is that which we call love that doesn't match up with truth. God's truth as God has revealed the truth. That thing's not love. Similarly, though, those of us who would claim to hold on to the truth and yet are not loving God and loving our brothers, we've not yet fully grasped the truth. This keeps us away from some type of, of, of cold intellectualism. It, it, it completely eliminates any type of theological haughtiness because I, I can't hold on to this and claim that it's the truth. And claim that I'm abiding in and walking by the truth while looking down upon my brother. To say that I love God while hating my brother is to prove myself to be a lie. And to say I love the truth while hating my brother is to prove myself to be a liar. So he, he brings these things together. And he, right from the beginning, that's why he began his, his letter to these people with, with, I love you in the truth. And I love you in the truth because of the truth. It's the truth that binds us together. He says the truth that's in you and the truth that's in me and the truth that remains. What joins us together? What binds us together as a people? What causes me to love you and you to love me? Isn't it the truth? Isn't it this truth that we hold together as revealed in God's word? Look, there's plenty of things that are easy to not love me for. There's plenty of unlovely things in me. Any love you have for me bases itself on the fact that we're united in the truth. The truth in love. That's his focus here. So he says, I rejoice greatly to find that some of your children are walking in the truth. It's just tantamount to saying and walking in love. Now, we don't know where he ran into these children. We don't even know who the children are. But is it perhaps that, you know, he ends this letter by saying your elect sister greets you. And so perhaps is, is John removed from this church? This elect lady and her children, he's, he's being ministered to by another church and he's run into some of her children. He's run into some who have come from that town that he otherwise didn't know. And what does he see when he looks at him? He says, I see you're walking in the truth. We don't think in those terms very often, do we? Walking in truth? It's all over the scripture. John has great concern for it, as does the Lord Jesus Christ. But more often than not, we think of truth, we think of intellectual activity. What do I believe? What do I confess with my mouth? But he says, no, it's not just enough to believe it. It's not just enough to confess it. I desire that you walk in it. That this is the pattern of your life. That this is the force behind everything that you do, that you're walking in truth. And he says, and I delight in it. Can anything delight you more than to catch your children walking in truth? He says the same thing in his third letter. The third and fourth verses of 3 John. He says this. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you were walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Why do we do so much of what we do? Because we have a burning desire to see our children walking in the truth. So this is the first half of the letter. We're united in the truth. We love each other in the truth. We are bound together by truth. I celebrate the fact, I rejoice in the fact that I catch you walking in the truth for a very specific purpose. And that's what the four at the beginning of verse seven is. 
Some translations, I think the NIV, they didn't know what to do with that four, and so they eliminated it. But if we remove the four, we almost have two different letters. We almost have two things that don't seem to go together at all. You've got this one statement on walk out the truth in love, and then another statement about who is Christ. We separate these, and then we end up wondering, well, what, is, what does one have to do with another? But they're very closely bound together. He's saying there's a danger that's coming. He's going to warn us about a very real danger that proves that men don't have God. And he says, what's our defense against this? The reason I chose this letter, I believe God had me choose this letter for us to read together and study together on this first Sunday of Advent is because, as I told you in the beginning, there's a lot at stake with regards to what we believe about the incarnation. And he's saying here, one of the ways that you guard that is by walking together in truth and in love. That's what the four means. Because I rejoice in all this. I call you to walk in truth and love. I call you to love one another. I remind you of this commandment because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They're surrounded by deceivers and people who are in error. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. What makes them deceivers? Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the antichrist. There's a lot of talk in the Christian world these days about tone. About the tone with which we say things. And you all know what the unwritten 11th commandment is. Be nice. Ignoring the fact that so many people who speak so much destructiveness, so many people that speak so much untruth, they do so with the nicest of tones. With the sweetest of cadences. Lies come packaged in the prettiest of bows. But we have here the apostle of love. This isn't Peter. This isn't Paul. This isn't an Old Testament prophet. This is John. And he's calling these ones the deceiver and the antichrist. That's what's at stake here. John isn't a jerk. John isn't trying to pick a fight. John isn't looking just to hurt some feelings, just to prove a point. He says there's a lot at stake here. And so because of this, I warn you that these are the deceiver and the antichrist. And I want you to notice here, he doesn't just call them this based on what they say. Look back with me. He says those who do not confess. The issue here isn't what they say, it's what they don't say. How many times will you have people that will, they'll receive a warning about some pastor or preacher or teacher that they're sitting under? You'll say, guys, this isn't good. This person is not teaching you the truth. And they'll say, well, I've never heard anything. I've never heard him, him say anything that's contrary to the Bible. I've never heard him say anything that was outside of orthodoxy. What is John saying? It's what he won't confess. Beloved, you could say 99% of the truth and you leave out that 1% and all of a sudden you've got a lie. So he's warning them based on what they do not confess. And with this warning comes the call to be discerning and to, and to be on guard. Beloved, I'm afraid that for so many, they have lost all ability of discernment. If anyone bears the name of Christ, calls the name of Christ, anyone calls themselves a church or a Christian teacher or author or leader or poster, their guard goes completely down and they go stupid. They lose the abilities of discernment and, and, and to listen with a, with a watchful ear. But going back to his first letter, 1 John 4, 1, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He says here in verse 8, watch yourselves. Don't believe every spirit. Don't believe every teacher. For many false prophets. Do we think that the enemy has done working out false prophets? Do we think that deceivers have just... That they went extinct in 1950? Do we, do we think that the enemy has just laid down and, and that the spirit of the Antichrist is, is no longer at work? Do we think that the church somehow has come to an absolute purity to the point that anyone who can build a building and put a person on a stage all of a sudden is exempt from this? Surely not. 
So he's saying you've got to watch out. You've got to be discerning. You've got to test the things that are said and watch out for the things that they will not say. That which they refuse to confess. And so this removes from us the right to sit under someone and say, you know, well, I don't agree with this piece. But so much of the rest of what he says just resonates with me. No, I don't agree. I don't agree that they would do this, that they would bring in a faith healer. I don't, I don't agree that they would, they would completely um, blaspheme God in these very clear ways. But, you know, the rest of what they say, it really seems helpful. It really seems to match up with Scripture. He said, you can't do this. You've got to watch out. You've got to beware. You've got to be on guard. You've got to test the spirits. And if this is, in fact, a letter to the church in Ephesus, it sounds much like what Paul had said to them. You remember in Acts 20, you've got that beautiful scene there as Paul is there down at the, at the, at the waterfront and he's, he's praying together with the Ephesian elders and he's, he's saying these words to them. Acts chapter 20 says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained by his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. He's saying, these will come after me and they have the spirit of the Antichrist, that spirit that is opposed to God. And they're not going to present themselves in ways that seem obvious. They're going to work their way in as, as sheep and wolves, excuse me, wolves and sheep's clothing. They will appear like you. They will speak much of the language. They will be sneaky, oftentimes so deceived themselves, they don't know that they're the deceiver. They're not waking up on Sunday morning and twisting their evil mustache and giving out a I'm going to lead everyone to the pits of hell. They themselves have been deceived and now they're participating in deceiving others. Even as they speak and sound in very many ways, orthodox, they can say things like Jesus is Lord. They can say things like God the Son came in the flesh. They can point us even to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And yet if you don't listen with discernment, if you don't dig, if you don't ask questions, if you don't compare to the whole counsel of God's word, pretty quickly you realize, I'm talking to a Jehovah's Witness here. But they sound so much like us. They speak so many of the same kind of words and the same kind of lingo. But he's saying it's those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Again, this is a concern going back to his first letter, the fourth chapter. He says, 1 John 4, 2, By this you'll know the Spirit of God. Everyone that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus, that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and now is in the world already. So this was a particular, one of the earliest heresies that was threatening the church. There was this particular worldview called Gnosticism, and it had a very dualistic view of creation. There was the, there was the invisible and the spiritual world, and that's all the good stuff. Then there's the tangible and the physical world, and that's all the bad stuff. So essentially salvation became about escaping the physical and just focusing on and someday ascending to only the spiritual. And from that worldview came a faulty understanding of Christ. What did I tell you at the beginning? That so often we create for ourselves a Christ that matches our thoughts, that matches our own worldview. We take the thoughts that we had about the world around us and what must be good or must be bad. We bring those to the scriptures and then we impose that upon who Jesus can and cannot be. So because of this, they had this particular heresy called docetism. It was that basically Jesus couldn't actually be physical because physical is bad, right? And so if the physical is bad, then the Son of God can't really take upon himself anything that's physical. And so it had to have been like a, like a, like a phantom body or an appearance of a body. There was others that with that very same worldview built this picture that what actually happened was that the Son of God, the Lagos, came down upon Jesus, the Son of Mary from Nazareth at his baptism, but then departed before the crucifixion. 
Again, what they did was they took their worldview and they imposed it on Christ. That's why we've got to be careful. Constantly bring our worldview in line with who Jesus is, not the other way around. And so he's saying that this is the heresy that he is, this is the heresy that John was confronting in his day. And now that word heresy, it gets, it's, it just gets thrown around these days, right? You'll hear people, anytime they hear something they don't like, immediately, heresy. And that sounds very high-minded and spiritual, right? And instead of saying, I'm leaving that church because I didn't get my way, I'm leaving that church because they're preaching heresy. When in fact, what they're preaching is very much in line with the traditional orthodox understanding of scripture. But instead, it's become like the word racism. I don't know that racism means much anymore. There's real racism. But you call everybody a racist and then you miss real racism. And you call everybody a heretic and you miss the real heresy. It becomes so watered down. And then all of a sudden, what should be sharp lines around what we can and cannot believe to be true about God, it all just gets blurred. But there was real heresy, even in the lifetime of the Apostle John. You need to think about it. We don't know when he wrote this. I tend to think that the Bible was concluded before 70 AD. But even if you think it went all the way out to 90, the end of the first century, you're still talking about within the lifetime of people who knew Christ. Witnessed Pentecost. Saw the crucifixion. And you've got this type of faulty, unorthodox, heretical thinking. Specifically, they were denying the true incarnation, that Christ Jesus had come in the flesh. Now, if we're not careful, though, we read this and we think, okay, good, well, I'm not a docetist, I don't even know what that means. And, and, and I'm not a Gnostic, I don't even know what that means, and I don't speak in those terms. And so he's saying then, if I confess that Jesus is coming to Christ, come in the flesh, that Jesus is the Christ, then I'm safe. Well, no, I'll remind you that there was just a long string of heresy that came after this. What happens is men wrestle with this and, and instead of beholding and gazing and constantly bringing their thoughts back to what scripture says is true, they constantly try to solve the puzzle. And when you try to solve the puzzle, that's where heresy comes. You end up with Arianism, some belief that there was a time when the son wasn't, that he was the greatest of all beings, but one that was created by the father or Eutychianism, where you believe that there is this blending between the natures of Christ. You get hundred percent God and hundred percent man. And instead of remaining hundred percent God and hundred percent man, they blended together to make milk chocolate of some sort. There's a Polinarianism that says that what really happened was the son of God came and he just kind of put on a flesh suit. He stepped into a flesh suit, but that there was not a real human soul in there. That, or there's some that teach that, that what happened was the Lagos came and it just removed or consumed the human soul of Jesus of Nazareth. So that he didn't have a human mind and a human will and human emotions. They just keep recycling these same old heresies. Again, if you go back and study early church history, you find that going through about the 5th century, they kind of created all the heresy there is and now we just recycle it. We rename it. We, we, put a new, we put a new twist on it. So he's not saying you master this one thing and then all of a sudden you're free to think whatever you want about Jesus Christ. He's saying any who speak that that's not true about Christ like this, you've missed the mark. So he says, watch yourselves, verse 8, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win the full reward. He's warning about the severity of what's at stake here. He says, I care that you would not lose what we have worked for. If you hold on to these unbiblical and untrue understandings of who Christ is, you'll let loose of it. And I don't know, I don't have time this morning to fully unpack how I land where I land, but I don't fully know what he's talking about here. When you do not lose what we have worked for. Is he talking about the ministry that they have built and, and the testimony that they have of who Christ Jesus is and they not be disqualified from the working there within the church, the working of the gospel ministry there in their church? Is, is he talking about salvation? Is he talking about, if you get to the next verse, he says that those who do not abide in the teaching of Christ and those who go ahead outside the bounds of who Christ is, says they don't have God. So is he talking here about men who prove themselves to have never been believers? We know that he can't be saying that you were a believer. You were a follower of Christ. You had truly repented and trusted in him and received eternal life. But then because this faulty teaching snuck in, you lost that salvation. There's no such thing. 
Christ Jesus causes all those who are his to persevere. No one will snatch them from his hand. But perhaps as he's talking about those deceived ones, much like he did in his first letter, he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. They looked like us. They spoke like us. They participated in the ministry with us. But in the end, they proved that they didn't have God. They, they professed the name of Jesus Christ. But once it came down to it, you realize we're not talking about the same thing. We're not believing in the same Christ. I tend to lean towards the second. I think he's saying, my fear for you is that you prove yourself to have never been true. You prove yourself to have never been sincere. You prove yourself to have never had God because you go beyond. He says, everyone who goes ahead. This is like there's a fence around what is true and, and where, we can, where we can go with regards to our thoughts about God. And he says, you're desired for more. I used to be a, a big golfer and there was a golf course I played pretty often that had a hole that basically was just a sharp left turn. And, and if you hit your biggest club, you were going to go over the fence on that, on that hole. And the first time I didn't know. So I just hit my biggest club. It went over the fence. Well, I realized that a bunch of people had made that same mistake. And so I looked out there and I saw just thousands of golf balls. So I jumped the fence. Started gathering up as many golf balls as I could. Next time I played that course, I knew the hole. I wanted more golf balls. So I hit the big dog again, jumped the fence. And about that time, my dad said, there's a sign right here that says, you will be shot. <laughs> there's danger in going beyond the bounds. With a desire for new treasures and new trinkets and new ideas and new thoughts. That's what I said, I don't want to teach you anything new. I want to teach you what you have known to be true. I want to remind you of what has always been true. And I want you to test me based on what the scriptures say to be true about Jesus Christ. He says, stay in bounds. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Whoever does not abound, I mean, abide. Whoever does not remain in the teaching that we know to be true about Christ, he doesn't have a Father. And so what do we do then? How do we protect ourselves? Remember, this is, a, this is a letter clearly aimed at watching out. So how do we protect ourselves? Number one, we watch out. We pay attention. We don't settle for someone who speaks just a little bit of heresy, but most of what they say is good. They're, they just withhold 20% of the counsel of God's word, but look, the stuff they say has proven to be really helpful to me. So we watch out and we take care and we listen with discernment, but he goes further than this. He says, verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes place in his wicked works. Now, now remember, John's just been talking about walking the truth out in love. He's got great compassion and concern, as any pastor should, for hospitality. That you love one another and you welcome one another and you open up your homes. And if there's a traveling brother, if there's a, if there's a, if there's a, a preacher or a pastor or another Christian that's coming through town, you open your door to them and you welcome them in and you care for them and you show Christian love and concern for them. But he's saying here, if anyone comes to you and they don't bring this teaching, don't receive them into your house or even give him a greeting. Don't participate in this man's lies. This giving him a greeting isn't that you can't tell them hello. How are you going to know what they believe if you don't give them a hello? It's, it's a blessing. He's saying to do this is to affirm, to join in their ministry, that you give validity to their message. And, and, and they're not just for the sake of your own conscience and not just for the sake of your own theology, but for the sake of your children and for those who are watching. Listen, you, you know what is so so scary about whenever there'd be like a rogue policeman or you find out there's some bad seeds because we've been telling our children from the time they were little bitty, those are helpers. When you, when you need help, who do you go to? You go to a policeman, you go to a fireman, you go to some official person. What is, what is so awful and so egregious about someone in a position of authority? Call it a teacher, call it a pastor, call it someone that has been entrusted with care of others when they prove to be hurtful. When they prove to be wicked, because we've been telling those who are entrusted to their care, they're the good guys. And so when you find out that they're not the good guys, you've got to have big red flashing signs. And so if I know that one is not a good guy, I can't be buddy buddy with him, lest I send the wrong signal to everybody else. Lest everybody else believe, oh, this is a guy to be trusted. 
This is a guy to be listened to. No, you don't welcome them into your house. You don't give them a blessing. Lest you be seen as participating in their wicked, in their wicked works. And again, how incredibly harsh does this sound in this ecumenical age? When we're told we're all just supposed to partner together. We're all just the church. Well, some are. But we've got to have discernment. We've got to have a questioning ear and questioning eyes to make sure. Are you confessing the same Christ? When you say that he has come in the flesh, are you confessing the same Jesus that we are? And we can't worry about tone and we can't worry about appearances and we can't worry about how that might be received by those who already hate us. We've got to recognize that our job is to protect the flock. Our job is to watch out for error. Our job is to not be, be seen to be participators in wickedness. And again, this could make people very un uncomfortable. Number one, because we don't always know where the lines are, and that's just flat out truth. It could be incredibly difficult to figure out what is a, what is the kind of offense that we, that kind of offense that we can't just fellowship. It takes wisdom and it takes seeking counsel and it, it, it really does take the work of the Spirit of God to give you a discernment between who am I allowed to partner with and to greet and to welcome in a moment and who must I shun. But, but then also because we don't know how to do, we don't, there's always, anytime there's this conflict or anytime we're seeking to build some separation, there's always the possibility for flesh and sin and haughtiness and pride to sneak in. Just to be frank with you, for five years I've wrestled with this as your pastor. Because anytime I'll say things like, you hear other pastors say, I inevitably get emails from people that say, I don't like it when you say that. Sounds like you're saying we're the only good church. I'm not saying we're the only good church, but you've got to know the evil that's out there. And so if I'm honest, I wonder if I've veered too far and I've missed the ditch where I'm supposed to stand in front of you and call out churches by name. Because here's the reality. Sometimes people move on. They leave this church and they go sit in places where the truth's not being taught. But do I answer for God, answer before God? Because I haven't stood in front of you and said, mark these people and avoid them. You see the, you see the problem. You see the tension. You see the difficulty with this. And he's not talking about non-believers here. He's talking about those who claim the name of Christ. I've got to, I've got to move here. But, but if you consider that, the, the, the sexual sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Remember the man has a, has a uh, his uh, dad's wife is his, like, it's weird. It's, yeah, there's something going on there. He's saying that's even the kind of stuff the world doesn't do. That's creepy in everybody's book. But he says, 1 Corinthians 5, 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning sexually immoral people of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters. Since then, you'd have to go out of the world. He said, I told you, don't hang out with perverts. But I didn't mean the perverts in the world because if that was the case, you'd just have to go to the moon because you're surrounded by them. They're everywhere. He says, but I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or a viler or a drunkard drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He's saying the judgment begins in the house of God. And when one claims the name of Christ and they say things that aren't true about Christ, you can't partner with him. You separate from them. You don't welcome them into your home. And we know that this was history tells us that this was a thing that John didn't just say in word, but he put into practice. There's there's a, there's a man named Irenaeus, and he was a um, he was an early second century Christian writer, and he was a disciple of a man named Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of John, the apostle John. And so Irenaeus, in one of his books, he tells this story about Polycarp and uh, the apostle John going into a public bathhouse in Ephesus. And that the apostle John immediately leaves when he sees a particular man walk into the bathhouse. And as the story goes, he looks John looks to the man next to him and says, look, let us flee, lest the building fall upon us. For Serenthus, the enemy of truth, is inside. I don't even want to be taking a bath. We're not holding a church service here. I don't want to even be taking a bath, a public bath, in a place with this man who is an enemy of the truth. Lest God bring his judgment upon him and the whole thing fall down upon us. That's the level of division he's talking about here. While at the same time, walking out the truth in love. So beloved, I suppose the reason God has us here, the reason I draw your minds here 
this first Sunday in Advent is because we're going to hear a lot of talk about Christ all around us. This is the reason for the season. And as I seek to draw you to the humanity of Christ and the divinity of Christ and why that matters, why he has to be fully God and he has to be fully man. And we go all the way forward to the ascension and Christ Jesus is interceding right now as the God man on your behalf. I want you to understand why we're focusing on that and not shepherds and angels and manger babies. I want you to understand that what we're seeking to do is to protect ourselves and to protect each other and to protect this fellowship against the danger that is out there. I'm asking you to have a discerning ear. Watch what I say. I will err. I've not mastered it. But I want you to listen with a discerning ear what it is that I have to say. And be very careful who you listen to out there and who you read and who you allow to teach your heart about who this Jesus Christ is. With the hope that as we come back here on Christmas Eve, we celebrate it, we will have as clear a picture as possible, as biblical a picture as possible of who this Christ is. Father, we love you and we thank you. We celebrate and we worship you for this truth that you have revealed. That your son has come in the flesh. All that it means to be made man. Human body, human will, human mind, human emotion. That he redeemed the fullness of humanity. So Father, I pray that you help us to hold to that truth and then to have discernment and wisdom with regards to who we fellowship with, who we partnership with, who we allow to speak truth into our hearts and into our minds. God, as we approach your table now, we pray that as we celebrate this truth, Christ Jesus in the flesh, crucified and slain for our, for our sins, I pray that you would strengthen our minds and our hearts, strengthen our faith, that we can walk in light of it. God, we love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.